Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. We are broadcasting, as we always do, deep within the bunker. Here we are in Yankeedom, speaking uh, uh, heretical truths. Or, that's, a, that's a contradiction. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> orthodox truths that that's are heretical to in light of the new orthodox. That's, that's the way to put it. That's right. Anyway, uh, it's great to have you with us. And uh, we have uh, been apart for a couple of weeks, and uh, it, we thought it'd be good to start off the show with, you know, in the course of our introductions, just bringing folks up to speed on what we've been doing and what kind of going on, on going on in our lives. And uh, Glenn, you were sharing something a minute ago that was pretty interesting and exciting. Why, why don't you go ahead and start? Okay. Well, I'm Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University. Uh, and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I publish basically two articles a month over at Breakpoint. I've been doing a rather lengthy series, uh, it's now up to 12 or 13 articles, on emerging worldviews. And uh, lately I've been working a lot on transhumanism and some of the core ideas that lead to that. Uh, what are what are the metaphysical assumptions? What what are their assumptions about the nature of humanity and the nature of machines? Those kinds of things, and that's likely to show up as a topic on a future podcast. All right, and it's going to be on Breakpoint. I think you mentioned too. It's going to be yeah, a theme. There's there's a uh, at least a proposed Breakpoint commentary on that coming up. Excellent. Well, that's great to know. And I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both as adjunct professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Um, one of the um, things I'm just starting to get involved with is a talk that I'll be giving with actually the dean of Gordon-Conwell Kuhn. Um, I'll be presenting sort of trends in systematic theology for a group of pastors who have been to seminary, but they have been away from it a long time. And they're concerned about some of the uh, more radical theologies that are developing. So I was asked to give the systematic uh, presentation of some of these trends and, and how to navigate our way through them. Um, I do hope to have that published as something as well. I'd like to, to, to uh, pack it out a bit and uh, have a few other works, but I keep hinting at them in different talks. So hopefully they'll take... Uh, on book form here soon. Just, just so our, our listeners know, CUM is the urban campus for Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. It stands for the Center for Urban Ministerial Education, just so yep. you know. Anyway, uh, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the uh, pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester. And uh, I've recently had a book published entitled uh, The Household and the War for the Cosmos. And that's been, going, it's been uh, well received and, and is getting good reviews. And I'm happy about that. Last week I was at the Charlemagne Institute out in Minneapolis, and I could not get out of Minneapolis. I was <laughs> there longer than I had planned. It was a great time. John Elliott, the uh, the guy that uh, invited me out, is a marvelous uh, friend, and uh, he uh, is overseeing a, a, a an internship program there where young people, college students from around the United States, uh, are spending the summer writing articles that are published online. So I was there with Alan Carlson to uh, speak to the interns and the, to, to other people who were in attendance. So it was, it was fun to, to be with the interns, but it was also a lot of fun to be, to be with Alan. Alan, if, if, if uh, listeners are unfamiliar with, with him and his work, Alan's probably the foremost uh, authority on the family, the history of the family, alive today. So this is just, he's a, he's a lot of fun to be with. 
and uh, to to, uh, to talk to. He uh, used to be the uh, the director of the uh, Rockford Institute, mm. and he has uh, the sort of the in the world of paleoconservatism, the uh, the marvelous. Uh, uh, you know, he, he's, he's known for a marvelous thing that he did. He fired Richard John Newhouse. Really? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so that, that, that's something with among paleoconservatives is like, all right. <laughs> but anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, today, uh, we are uh, going to be talking about something that I'd like to, to, to reflect on, and it's my day. And so what I'd like to talk about today is uh, something that I've... I, I've talked to you guys about a little bit here and there, and and that is, uh, the, what will life be like after the welfare state? So if we if we um, believe that the uh, kingdom of God and the welfare state are are different things, <laughs> that means the welfare state will end someday. So now how that comes about. Uh, I think is open for discussion, and I've got an idea that I'd like to present. But what the welfare state has done for us is sort of fill a gap, and I'd like to think a little bit with you guys about that that uh, you know that phenomenon or that fact that it's filled a gap, and then what we can anticipate occurring after it no longer can fill the gap. But but the gap that it filled is with the, with the with the industrialization of the West. Um, human beings became human resources. Hmm. Labor was something that was understood to be, you know, transferable and mobile. Something that got, you know, there was a. There, we began to talk about labor markets, things like that, which meant that that just like raw materials uh, in an industrial process, people get moved around. So people go to where the work is. So. Um, like for example, here in New England, uh, we have a lot of old mill towns. Now those old mill towns have got a lot of charm, but they've also got a lot of empty buildings <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because the mills moved away. You know, like in, in Anchester, where I pastor, it was it was uh, a, a town known for its silk manufacture, manufacturing. Uh, and in fact, uh, today we have a we have a minor league baseball team called the Silkworms. Yeah. But there's no silk made in Manchester now. Mm. It's just part of our city's heritage. Mm. And all those old mills have been turned into lofts yeah, and pubs <laughs> where, where cool, hip people, yeah. you know, live, uh, you know, uh, and commute into Hartford to work at big uh, insurance companies. That's right. They do have all those in Manchester, the old mills that are turned into lofts. Now. Yeah, right. That's yeah. what that's all about. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's... But what happened was, of course, during the Industrial Revolution, people had to go to where the work was if they wanted, you know, to 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 have the, the you know the wages that, uh, that that those those factories were providing. And in those days, of course, uh, you know, it meant being near water sources where you could drive, you know, water wheels that would power the machinery within the mills. So you you find uh, here in New England these funky little towns in these sort of nooks and you say, well, why did anyone build anything here? Well, the reason why is because there was a waterfall or there was some kind of dynamo that they could place, you know, into the stream to, 
to drive the, the machinery in the mills. Anyways, what that meant was the people left home. Hmm. They left behind their households uh, and all of that, all, all that, that those households uh, did for them. You know, so, you know, the, the, the pre-industrial uh, households, you know, households that existed before the Industrial Revolution, they did everything. They provided education, they provided elder care, you know, your grandmother or grandfather lived in the spare room, they would help out with taking care of the kids, or maybe they would help out on the farm. And, you know, they, 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 they played a vital role, older people played a vital role in the life of households. And there would be a time where, you know, maybe your children would move away and then you would go and move in with them. But they were just down the street. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't, you know, half a world away. Now, with the diffusion of the labor force, quote, labor force, and with the further development, if we, as we've talked about in, in our podcast, with women entering the labor force, uh, the household has been evacuated. It's just a, a shell of, of its former self. But that meant that people had nothing to turn to for help, you know, because you moved half a, half a continent away sometimes to get to the jobs. So the welfare state fills the gap uh, that was left when, the, when households were vacated. Now what we have is a situation in which uh, we've got a, a, a whole series of perverse incentives. Let me give you an example. Does it make any sense in the short term for you to have a child. <laughs> if you're going to rely on Social Security and your 401k for your elder, you know, for, for your, for your you know, retirement, um, then, you know, the incentive to have a child with the idea that someday my children will care for me is gone. Yeah. yeah. So now the choice is between, you know, do I have a baby or a boat? And more and more people are opting for the boat or fill in the blank, it doesn't have to be a boat, but you get my point. And that's why wherever welfare states exist, population plummets. This is something that's documented. I could, I could, uh, I don't have the, the data with me, but... Uh, Interestingly enough, you're exactly right there, but when you read discussions of this, it's never the welfare state, it's always education. Yeah. or something along those lines that they assign the responsibility for declining population. But I think you're exactly right. It's a welfare state. Yeah, yeah. The idea, I guess, meaning that, that the more people are educated, the less likely they are to want to have a family. Right. Yeah. That's, that's sort of the implication. Or have many children. Right. That's kind of the implication of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and we, can, we, we can see, you know, one of the things that happens is as the welfare state uh, grows, we can see populations decline, but not uniformly. We can, we can more or less see um, the progress of this phenomenon across the world. So for example, you know, there, there was a time when many of our ancestors would have lots and lots of kids. Yeah. And now um, it's very rare. The only folks that seem to have lots and lots of kids are people who, for religious reasons, do so. So you've got, you know, the quiverful movement. Yeah. And, you know, we could talk about that some other time, and there are people who have problems in principle with what's going on in that movement or have had bad experiences. But, mm. but it's a fact that, that, the, that the people who are in that movement have a lot of kids. Mm. But if you're not in that movement, you generally don't have many kids. <laughs> and, um, and furthermore, 
places where people can really afford to have kids in one sense because their income levels are high, their expenses are tremendously high as well. If you live in Manhattan or if you live in Silicon Valley or whatever, you know, so the incentives are there for you to simply sort of free ride the system, mm. believing that your 401k will be there for you, the wealth or the, the uh, social security. Speaking of kids, there's a kid behind us. <laughs> letting letting uh, us know how they feel about our conversation about children. <laughs> you just think of me as a utility. That's right. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes. <laughs> right, right. So anyway, yeah. So, uh, so you have this this dynamic where you know, in terms of what's in it for me, why should I have a kid? It's not there. Yeah. Now, to connect this in with what we talked about last time, uh, where we were discussing the spheres yeah. that uh, Abraham Kuyper talked about, one of the issues that comes up with this idea of sphere sovereignty is what happens when a sphere stops functioning properly. Right, mm. right. So the family is, is one of the most fundamental spheres. What happens when the household stops functioning the way the household is supposed to? Right. Well, another sphere has to pick up the slack. Mm. And the other sphere, most often, when a sphere collapses, most often it is the government that steps in to do it. Right. So what we're seeing in the development of the welfare state is the family, you know, analyzed from a Kuyperian viewpoint. Right. It's the family is no longer functioning properly as a sphere. You know, it, and as the sphere contracts, as it's not doing what it's supposed to do, the government then steps in to to do to you know to create the welfare state. And we can continue on from there. There are a whole bunch of other ways right. that the government has come in to interfere with or fix the, the household. Right. And the fact is it's ill-equipped to do that, and the net result is it ends up doing a bad job and families get worse and worse. Right. This is, there's an interesting uh, thing that, uh, that I was introduced to by Alan, Alan Carlson, when I was at the Charlemagne Institute. He did, it, did a marvelous talk uh, on sort of the, the... They actually anticipated this problem with uh, the New Deal. And so initially with the New Deal, there were a lot of uh, provisions to sort of preserve the household. Hmm. And uh, there was a very strong sort of um, uh, matronly sort of uh, influence there from sort of, you know, sort of first wave feminists who were concerned with preserving uh, the dignity of motherhood hmm. and preserving the role of mothers in society, and so it's the kind of feminism that most people don't know about anymore. But there, <laughs> right. there was, there was once upon a time. That's right. The, Feminists who liked being women. Yes, <laughs> and that they like. I'm going to do the sea hag. Sea hag, yeah, sure. So you know that's, but that was that was that was it was fascinating to see Alan, you know, sort of bringing this up, and he had, you know. Uh, you know all of the data to, to, yeah, to substantiate nice. his, his argument, but uh, what was also interesting is that Alan said that the, the chief supporter of equity feminism, because there were those there were those sort of more radical feminists even in those days, uh, their supporters were big business. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. And <laughs> what we're learning is that hasn't gone anywhere. Yeah. Big business has always had the family and the household in its sights. Yeah. It's yeah. always wanted to get the women in the workforce. 
back in the 20s and the 30s, all the way along. Hmm. This is something that you know people like uh, Tucker Carlson is bringing out now and helping people to to, to see, you know, uh, in Fox, yeah. uh, of all places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, um, so uh, if if anybody wants to to dig a little deeper into the hmm. sort of the history. Uh, and sort of the, how the various ideologies are reflected in that history. I, 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 I can't recommend anyone better than Alan C. Carlson, a lot of his books. Um, it, and he, so in his books, he would uh, cover a lot of this history. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so, so what we have is we have this, this, tr this situation in which we've got perverse incentives. Now, what, we're, what we create in the welfare state is a very fragile environment and um, a very fragile system, I should say. And uh, what got me thinking along this line with regard to fragility is Nassim Nic uh, Nicholas Taleb. Uh, you, know, you know, he wrote The Black Swan. And he's, uh, he's got his Inserto series where he deals with the subject of risk. And so, with the subject of risk, you know, he was a he was a trader. He was a futures trader. So this is a guy who thought about risk, you know, all the time, and he had billions of dollars at risk. <laughs> and uh, he he anticipated uh, several uh, crises in the West, and he became very wealthy because he had short, essentially shorted Western civilization. <laughs> so so when we had you know 9/11, he made a lot of money. When when we had the, the mortgage crisis, he made a lot of money. So, but, but he's, he, he's, he's, what he's trying to do through his, his writing is show you how we're setting ourselves up and making ourselves fragile. Hmm. So when we think about the welfare state, what happens in the welfare state is you have a situation in which people uh, are living without an, sort of an awareness of the risks that they are incurring because they don't have households, for example, to care for them in, in time of need, they're, they're shifting the risk to the state. Mm -hmm. So there's yeah. the amelioration of risk. Yeah. Before we get into the fragility side of it, okay. it's, it's, I think it's worth noting that one of the fundamental issues with the welfare state, there are several of them that we can name, but one of them is that it ends up, because it becomes centralized, you end up getting a one-size-fits-none policy. <laughs> I like that. You know, where you know, where in a more traditional society, the needs are dealt with on a more local level. However, you want to define right. that, either through the family or in, through the church, through the community, those kinds of things. These are people who know the circumstances, who know the players, who know the individuals involved, and who know where the real needs are. And they're actually much more capable of assessing and doing that, taking care of them, than a bureaucrat in Washington is. Right, right. So this is, again, an example. When, when a sphere collapses and another sphere steps in, right. it doesn't work. Right. It doesn't work as well. Um, there's a... Uh, theologian named Schneider, John Schneider at Calvin, who talks about our responsibility to other people in terms of our moral proximity to them. So I have much greater responsibility to people who I'm morally proximate to. The flip side of that is the Catholic idea of subsidiarity, which basically says problems should be handled on as local a level as possible. And those, both of those principles are completely violated 
right. um, in the welfare state. And yet, those are the principles that actually work. Right, right. And, and so, yeah. so not only is the welfare state fragile, right. it's incompetent. Right, right. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point. And, and one of the things that you create with a welfare state is an impersonal mechanism. Yes. So you create, create a system that is incapable of learning. Right. And, and it has yeah, consciousness. In the bureaucratic side of it, to, you, know, you hit it right on earth, rather than being charitable <laughs> yeah. as it sets out. I mean, you know, knowledge from, from uh, people who have been had to, to really depend for a lot of resources on it is just how dehumanizing it is by digging into every aspect of a person's finances, background, signatures, yeah. this, right. and the minimal amount of, of actual help that comes about and how limited those that kind of help is. And then the, the, the point you end up finding out from a lot, a lot of conversations I've had with people is that it almost forces them to stay at a point where they need to remain dependent if they're having yeah. to draw off of it. Sure. I'm right, talking, so that if you offer them a way out, they'll say, but I'll lose my benefits. And they I've lose that everything to down to all the way down, sure. yes, from health care to, right. to food helps or if they get, they're getting housing help. And so what they do is they stay right on that border because they can't find something that's going to really pull them out. Right. So they end up staying under that. They're not going to do two jobs because that's going to put them in a situation worse than the one they have and not even have being able to get, in, you know, I'm talking about people sure. who are like immediately and now dependent on the sure. state. Not so much. Well, and, and to take it one step further, when the um, war on poverty started, I'll give them points for trying to do it responsibly. You know, the sort of thing that, that you referred to earlier. But the law of unintended consequences has never been repealed. Right. And what ended up happening, I know this, now this is controversial, mm -hmm. but... We never get into controversy <laughs> on the podcast. But, yeah, but never. <laughs> it, but when I was growing up, I, I mean, I've heard people say this is a, you know, a white nationalist argument or right, something like right, that, but right. when I was growing up, my mother taught in inner city Newark. She was right in the heart of the ghetto right. in, in Newark. As a matter of fact, when the riots broke out in 68, my parents put my, the brothers that were still at home and me in a car and drove us down there to show us why the riots happened. Wow. See wow. here, at this corner, this occurred. Right, right. You know, so, I mean, there, my, my mom was dedicated to that community. She told me one day that she went to visit some of her kids. Mm. She was teaching special ed, mm. okay? Mm. Um, emotionally disturbed, you yeah, know. Okay. The, she went to visit some of the kids, and, and she mentioned that their father wasn't home, yeah. wasn't living in the house. Right. And I said, well, well, why? I didn't understand this. I was you know, 10 years old. Right. And they said, well, because the way welfare is set up, if the father is at home, they assume he has a job, mm -hmm. and therefore their benefits get cut. But there are no jobs. So in order for them to get the money they need to live, he has to leave the house. Right. right. I said, this makes no sense at all. I'm not <laughs> 10 years old. What do I know? And he actually can get, a you know, again, a different set of benefits and the family yes, as well. Sure. So, right. so the effect of this, again, remember, collapse of the family. Mm -hmm. Government steps in to fix it. They're incompetent to do it. They set up a, an even worse set of perverse incentives that destroy the African-American family. Now, now, just so that people can uh, see that this works for white people too. Sure. My own personal experience. 
My, uh, my father deserted our family when I was 11 years old. I've decided that that's something I have to be able to talk about publicly because the, uh, uh, the point that I'm trying to make is that this is not a racial it, thing. It, it absolutely not a racial thing. It, it had to do with the government trying to be responsible with welfare, but just screwing it up badly. Well, let me just sort of play this out a little bit. Years later, I actually got to talk to my father about what what this you know was going on, and he really, uh, really believed that we'd be okay. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> now, why is it? Did he have such did he have such tremendous confidence in my mother's capabilities? <laughs> no. <laughs> he knew that we would not starve because the state would take care of us. Now, let me just sort of take this to another level. And if I, if I never speak to my extended family again, I lose nothing because they have nothing, they have zero interest in me. And it's been demonstrated again and again. But my, my uh, extended family is blue blood, wealthy. They took no action to help. We were, I was living in a housing development uh, in a crime-ridden area. I spent time in foster care, and there was no sense of responsibility by millionaires. Yeah. I'm talking that kind of money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was no sense. We got in those days, millionaires had real money. That's yeah, right. it, it went somewhere. That's right. So, you know, all you people who are, who who think that that bringing up these matters is uh, somehow uh, racist or whatever, you're full of it. Yeah. I have I have zero respect for you. I've got nothing but contempt. This this is a problem. And if one of the reasons why I've got such strong feelings about this is because what Glenn described, I've seen from the inside. Yeah. I, I despise the welfare state. Now, at you, one you level... Know, now, let, 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 <laughs> let's, let's be clear here. They were doing their best to do something responsible here. They wanted to make sure the money got to the people who most needed it. But it's a one-size-fits-none policy. Right. That was the problem. And the unintended consequence, like I said, ended up being the the destruction, particularly the African American family, but also it's spreading across the board. It's spreading, yes, yeah. absolutely. It's yeah, spreading, it hit especially yeah. You know, I mean, I grew up in in Virginia, and it hit a lot of the the kind of you know the blue collar working families as well. Big, they tended to have huge families, but the the life was shifting, so they had huge families to take care of, but the work was not such that it was supplying that kind of. I mean, I remember my dad, he had to grow up, he, he grew up uh, sometimes, uh, they had stayed at his grandparents' house because my grandmother and, and his father, uh, my grandmother and my grandfather had divorced. And so my dad said, I, I grew up sleeping on the couch. He goes, I didn't know there was anything not normal about that. That's just the way it was. That's but right. I mean, the, the, that, it started to penetrate that world a lot. But I think Tom Sowell, um, conservative yeah, right. African-American um, right. uh, economist, um, he, he was one who was talking about really right after the Civil War, in particular, especially in the South. He said, when you actually know facts in the history, you have a different picture. So African American um, actually were doing a lot better than, for example, uh, Irish Americans. They were they were master road builders. Um, they worked in construction and roads to where it started to be a negotiation between people who needed good roads done 
and the African-American uh, road builders who were exceptional at doing it. So it was no longer a zero-sum game. Right, right. It, was, it was something where they could pick a price and they had to start working. And so, so these people not only were committed to their families, but had a, a very, uh, an expertise um, similar to other groups that have been in the minority in different countries um, and have had a certain expertise that has allowed them to flourish in ways at times that were very extreme otherwise. Yeah, we're and, seeing that with Mexicans in many parts of the United States now. That's They're right. the only people who know how to build anything anymore. Build, that's right, places. and work a, work a long day. <laughs> uh, the Italian immigrants. Well, back in the day, I'm thinking we've, today. We've got some. We got some in, in Newington oh, okay. that are still doing that. Well, work. good. That's great. And, and work great. a hard day. And it, yeah, similarly, when I uh, I was working in, during my seminary years in uh, painting crews, and and, and the, the roofers were tended to be uh, migrants coming in, and they would work that full day and then mm-hmm. another full day in that's one right. day, and then, and then they'd go out and have friend fun with their friends. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and 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 be there and happy the next day, and uh, while everyone else was grumbling. But the but the, but the great thing about that, you know, I mean, what, what Tom Sowell was saying is that this not only kept the family intact, but it started to increase the, the, the movement um, um, after the Civil War. Um, but it was really, as his argument came, when the welfare state came in, to do a lot of good things, especially with urbanization happening and all these things going on. But the unintended effects or, and the things that, you know, I mean, maybe looking back and could say you could see they would have happened. But yes, it started to create the conditions for which that the family unit had pressure on it, started right. to break down, responsibility broke down. And then, of course, jobs started to shift, especially as sort of there was, there was also social tensions. I mean, moving, sure. moving people into the city, a lot of businesses went out, the opportunities weren't there, the transportation to get out. So, I mean, a lot of things that, that you know, but just hard things to deal with. So, you know, some of that, that came in to fix that, but it ended up creating right. generations of, of problems and uh, so now what we have is a situation that's growing increasingly oh, fragile because we've got a problem the, the whole welfare state model is based on the idea that the population continues to grow mm-hmm. and it continues to be productive pays into a uh, I'll have a cider this time cider another yeah, one. down cider. east yeah. So you're paying into a system that it is essentially a, a you know redistribution of wealth, uh, but we have fewer and fewer people who are you know able to pay in because of two things. One is there are fewer people. <laughs> in other words, we're not producing enough people to keep the thing solvent, and the people that we are producing are not competent. They don't know how to hold down a job. They don't know actually how to. They, they don't, they're not actually. They don't produce a surplus. In fact, they're actually feeding on the system themselves. Yeah, they tend, tend to be symbolic now. To, uh, I, I tend to look at things like this particular issue on the macro level. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right here. But I just did a fast set of calculations. Okay. If we were, I don't know what the exact national debt is right now. Oh, there's but, another ra- wrinkle. But it is somewhere <laughs> over $20 trillion. Yeah. If we were going to pay back $20 trillion at the rate of a dollar a second, it would take 633,779.11 years to do it. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, yeah, yeah, historically, right. great powers are always sunk by excessive debt. This yeah. is another entire... Uh, yeah, we got series the, here. Right, right. But the fact is, whatever you blame our excessive spending on, 
it's going, it cannot, it is unsustainable, and it is going to collapse, and that is going to bring down the welfare state. Aside from all of these sort of immediate local levels of fragility, on a macro level, our debt is such that it is impossible. Right. And now, all now we the, need is a slight rate rise in interest rates, yeah. and we're bankrupt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the thing about this sort of thing is that people always seem to make the argument that it's different this time. And, you know, I remember with the, the, the dot-com bubble, it was different that time. Oh, yeah. I remember with the with the subprime mortgage crisis, it was different that time. It's, it's always democratic different. socialism. It's going to be different this time. It's different this time. Yeah, it's no, there's no different. We were talking about the PCA and this whole drifting into sort of a, a muddy water of sort of, you know, sexual ethics uh, sort of sort of defining down deviancy, as Patrick Daniel Moynihan put it years ago. It's going to be different. It's going to be different this time. Because the people involved this time have good motives, whereas people in those days apparently didn't have good motives. But that was the point you made earlier. They had good motives. Absolutely. And they were trying to do the best they could with their initial assumption right. that it was the government's responsibility to step in and fix the problem. Right. Like I remember years ago, I had a man in my church named Dallas Jones. Hmm. Dallas was a really interesting guy. He was hmm. he was from the South, and uh, he had he had you know lived through the Depression. He was one of the architects of the G7. So in my church on the Cape, I had like three or four millionaires, and he was one of them. <laughs> I go over to his house, and his wife Gretchen had these beautiful oil paintings of their days in Madrid or Paris <laughs> or whatever, you know. And, uh, you know, they'd offer me mint juleps. And <laughs> <laughs> that's, was, the, that's them being Southern. <laughs> was, they, were, they were a lot of fun. But the thing about, the thing about Dallas is he was a, he was a, a, a marvelous man, a, a, a sterling character. And I remember the first time I went to the house, hmm. he was a blue dog Democrat. You know what that means. Yeah. So I went into the house, and here I am, you know, sort of, not sure what to expect. He, he would come to church to church with an ascot. You know, he had really? A, you know, oh yeah, he was oh, old school, yeah. man. He was old school. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> so I walk into the house, and he, they, I'm, I'm escorted into the living room, and I sit down. And I look around the walls, and the walls are covered with photographs of Democratic politicians with Dallas, uh. Bill Clinton, Al Gore, uh, Jack Kennedy, huh. <laughs> and they're all and they're all signed. Dear Dallas, thanks for the donation. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. there's an now now Dallas, he's a Keynesian. You know what that means if you're into economics. But but the thing about it was, is that he lived through a very dark period in American history with the Depression. Yeah. And 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 what what occurred at that time with the New Deal and all of that was was at least somebody's doing something to help. Yeah, yeah. Right. Intentions, good intentions. Yeah. And so Dallas became a supporter of the New Deal and, and, and sort of the democratic machine and sort of the promise of the welfare state. Dallas was a marvelous and uh, very gentlemanly Christian man. And, and, and it's interesting, I mean, it's kind of hearing that. I mean, I do think at that time, especially when you had had people like, you know, the neighbors and different theologians that really had taken up that... Um, social gospel. It, it, it too was, it wasn't simply always just an accommodation to the particular theology to be relevant. They really were trying to address social issues that had, and, and I think there was something unique 
about. I mean, it, it may be the West period, but the American experience itself, the way in which religion and, and the culture um, are symbiotic, that, that you, you feel in politics a certain religious burden to deal with social issues that maybe a different political, you know, arrangement yeah. wouldn't yeah. wouldn't uh, be so concerned with. So there is a, there is a sense of, you know, um, politics should be ser serving the common good, and and in that common good at this time would have been defined predominantly through a Christian lens, whether it had been watered down or not. So these intentions are very different than um, going in than. Um, the the uh, intentions wrapped up with sustaining it. And well, that's the thing. Yeah, that's the, yeah. that's the that's the problem. Yeah. So we can give you know you know lots of points for good intentions. That's right. But you know the old saying, oh, yeah, the road yeah, to yeah. hell. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know I, I loved yeah. and I respected Dallas and his yeah. wife Gretchen. They were marvelous people. Mm. And I've known yeah. many people. You know Harvey Cox. Mm. You know, we, we were joking about this a, f a few podcasts ago about those godly old liberals that don't exist anymore. <laughs> hey, Chris. <laughs> they just don't. They just. Oh, we we hop around. <laughs> right. they, but they just don't exist anymore. All the liberals now are just nasty. I I, I could say it it's something else. <laughs> but the old godly, you know, likable ones are all gone. Yeah, it just yeah. it seems to me. But now, what I'd like to do at this point is make do a little shift in terms of you know what does what 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 do I kind of anticipate uh, being the future? You know, if the welfare state, or maybe if I should put it this way, when the welfare state fails, what are we going to do? I think I think the thing that we're going to have to do is recover some things. We're going to have to, to rediscover the wisdom of our ancestors, and one of the one of the things that our ancestors understood is the way uh, households work mm -hmm. and the way that they respond to needs. You know, a beautiful example of this or picture of this in the Bible is the book of Ruth. So, you know, the book of Ruth, just quick synopsis and say, so what we have is a woman named Naomi. She has a husband. She has two sons. And they go to Moab because there's a, there, there's a uh, ecological <laughs> disaster in Israel, right? So they go to Moab. And when they're in Moab, uh, wouldn't you know it, uh, Naomi's husband and two sons die. So we have three women who are left. Uh, there's Ruth, of course. There's, uh, there's another woman, I can't remember her name off the top of my head. And then, of course, there's Naomi. And in this particular you know, so in the situation that they're, that they're in, we have to understand just how vulnerable three women are in the ancient world. Hmm. You know, there, there was no sort of like a toxic masculinity nonsense in those yeah. days. What you needed is, was a man to make sure that your interests were yeah. secured and protected. Because they would have invested in toxic back then just because <laughs> that's, of that's how right. it was. <laughs> yeah, they, they were vulnerable. <laughs> that's right. So they, they band together, you know, in the, in the face of this terrible event or a series of events. And then uh, Naomi marvelously says to her daughters-in-law, go back home. You're free. Your husbands are dead. Go, go back home and remarry. One of the daughters-in-law does, hmm. but Ruth does not. Ruth says, your God will be my God. She's a Moabitess, you know, so she's not an Israelite. She's, she's, she, she's a, a, a woman who married an Israelite. And, uh, 
she's so attached to her mother-in-law. And even the other woman apparently is very attached as well, but she has a different sort of take in terms of what she should do. Hmm. But she says, no, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. And so she goes back to Israel with Naomi. And then, of course, what happens then is we see over the course of the story how Israelite culture and law, the Mosaic law, addressed the problems that the welfare state tries to address. When disaster strikes, what do you do? Hmm. So when disaster strikes, there are, there are provisions in Mosaic law for how people are cared for. And one of those provisions, of course, is gleaning. You know, you've got the poor. You're not supposed to over or sort of... You're supposed to be very inefficient when you hmm. harvest your grain. Yeah. You're supposed to leave some stuff behind <laughs> because there are poor people who are coming behind and, and, and picking up what you've, what you've dropped. Right. Hmm. But the, the other thing that happens is that there's a redeemer. There's the kinsman redeemer. Hmm. And the kinsman redeemer is the, the male relation who has responsibility for picking up the responsibility for your welfare. Boaz is, of course, this, the kinsman redeemer in the story, but he's actually not the nearest kinsman redeemer. That's another fascinating feature of the, of the story. But, what, but Naomi's smart. She knows the, her relatives, and she knows which one is most likely to be soft-hearted. <laughs> She says, go to Boaz's field. <laughs> so she sends Ruth to Boaz in his field. And Boaz, he's heard about me, uh, Ruth. He's heard about her reputation for loyalty. Hmm. And he says to himself and to, to Ruth, I've heard about you and your love for Naomi. Hmm. I'm going to make sure that none of these young men bother you. And so then he goes to the young men and says, you better not touch that girl. <laughs> if you have, if you mess with that girl, you're messing with me. And so everybody keeps, oh, keeps distance, you know. And then uh, he tells him, leave extra grain. Hmm. So she retains her dignity. She's she's actually working. She's picking up the hmm. grain at this point. She's gathering it. She's not begging. She's working. Hmm. But you know, Boaz knows the need, and he makes sure that she has. And then when she comes home, of course, Naomi's like, "Where did you get all this grain?" <laughs> I was, you know, and, and she explains the situation. And then, of course, Naomi's smart. She knows, ah, Boaz has an interest in you. Hmm. <laughs> and so then she starts to make sort of the matchmaking. You know, goes on. Hmm. Now, as the story unfolds. Naomi is coaching Ruth in terms of how to secure Boaz's affections. And at the certain point in the story, you know, it, it, she, she signals to Boaz, I'm, I'm prepared to be your wife. There's mm. a way that that's done in Israeli culture. You should read the book, mm. the book of Ruth. But at, at that point, when Boaz gets the signal, he says, I have to talk to somebody. Mm. There's another redeemer mm. who's closer. I need to talk to him first. And he said, basically signaling to Ruth, I said, I'd like to do this, but I have to follow the rules. Then he goes and he talks to the other guy. He says, by the way, you're the kinsman redeemer. And, so, and in the course of the conversation, it's fascinating. Boaz says, you realize what this means, is you'll have new heirs if you bring Ruth in. And the kinsman, the, 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 the one who has got the first choice or the first option, you could say it's an option. Yeah. Uh, he's got the option to take or leave Ruth, and he, said, he realizes that it's good, he's going to dilute the inheritance to his other heirs if he brings Ruth in. Hmm. He says, I can't do it. Hmm. And then at that point, Boaz says, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> but Boaz knew yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that would be the response. Yeah. And Boaz 
marries Ruth. And the, what, what happens? It's the actually, first when, when you read the story, it is an absolutely beautiful example of a setup. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is the thing. Do you want the field? Yeah. Okay, great. By the way, you want some. <laughs> this, is, this goes with it. You mess with this guy. <laughs> so, so at the end of the story, what happens is, is that you know, Ruth's firstborn is given to Naomi to be her redeemer. Hmm. What's that mean? means that when that boy is a man, mm -hmm. he will be responsible for caring for Naomi in her old age. Hmm. And at that point in the story, all of the, the, the friends of Naomi gather around to celebrate. You know, they're happy for her because she now has a redeemer. Hmm. So this is a beautiful story of how households uh, cared for people who had faced disaster. <laughs> how different is that from our world? Yeah, I know. I mean, the most I get, I, I, I do have every, every now and then my, my stepson says something very precious. He says, you know, I'm going to be very wealthy one day and I'm going to take care of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I take it tongue in cheek, but at sure. least you don't hear that right, so much. Right, Turn right. your lips to God's ears. That's right, that's right, that's right. That's but right. but for, to have someone 19 say that to you, that's kind of uh, heartwarming. <laughs> now, now, you know, related to all this, getting sort of to a concept, mm -hmm. human scale. The problem with the welfare state is it's out of scale. No one can sort of, sort of uh, conceptually can, can grab it, grasp it. It's a machine. Mm -hmm. There's no one to be grateful to. Sure, there are things to be grateful for, yeah. but there's no one to be grateful to. Because mm -hmm. if there was someone to be grateful to, you'd have to make a return. Mm -hmm. Now. Remember that, that film, Cinderella Man? Yep. About yep. the boxer? Uh, uh, so Russell, Russell Crowe? Russell Crowe, Russell Crow, yeah. Crow, yeah. yeah. So now this is based on a true story. Uh, he had to go on the dole, but he pays it back. You remember that? He, he's ashamed that he has to, to for, the, for the sake of his family, he has to receive public assistance. And in order to, go ahead, Tom. In order to, uh, to, to uh, sort of retain his sense of, of dignity, he, get, he pays back everything he gets. In other words, the government helps him get over a, a difficult point in his life, get through a difficult point in his life. But then at the end, he, uh, he pays it all back. Now, what he's doing is he's transferring to the government a kind of personal dynamic that most of us don't, don't have when we think about government. Mm -hmm. When we think about the government, we think about laws, we think about impersonal systems. Mm -hmm. We don't think about someone that is owed something. Mm. In fact, we're told that it's a right. Yeah. We're not told that we have a responsibility. Well, that's one of the things that's, you know, that I think just noticing from, you know, my upbringing, one of the shifts that has happened in the conversation and, and you know, the culture we're in is this shift from people emphasizing that it's an obligation of society or government right. to carry certain burdens for us to which it would have never been conceivable growing up. I mean, these are things, of course, you expected that, that work was going to supply you in such a way that you'd be able to cover these things. And I think by having more people in the workforce and, and, and different kind of challenges in the workforce, um, it's complicated it. And so maybe it's made it more of a temptation for people to say, you know what, I can't, I can't beat the odds here. I need yeah. someone to come in and fill that. Um, but it does create a, a, you know, a very entitled conception 
Um, and, and, you know, people think that, okay, a certain amount of people have benefited the most in a particular society. Therefore, it's, it's their burden, too, to um, almost be penalized for that in such a way that they have to bear the responsibility for, for all these other people who have not managed to have that, you know, those things work out for them. So it, it creates these kind of um, conflicts um, that, uh, that, you know, other generations were just looking sort of, you know, work to, to find their own way and, and get on their own feet and, and then create the best conditions they could for their life. And the ingratitude kind of was at the heart of any, anything that worked out for them. But I think gratitude is yeah. something that requires uh, this human scale. Yeah. There needs to be a human face. Yeah. So like uh, in the story of Ruth, there's a face. There's a guy named Boaz. Yeah, yeah. There's someone to be grateful to. to yeah. I think we, we, we actually work to get away from that in our society because yeah. we, we, we would rather have a system. Yeah. We'd rather have a mechanism yeah. because there's no implication that there's something to be grateful or someone to be grateful to. Yeah. Uh, so there's no need to make a return. Yeah. Yeah. And this sort of, is, I think it reflects our, our sense of uh, what it means to be free. In our society, what, what freedom means is a, free, uh, uh, a lack of obligations or, or an absence of obligation. So we, we don't have anyone to be grateful to. Now, in pre-modern, the pre-modern world, there was always somebody to be grateful to. Yeah, yeah. Now, you ought to be grateful, of course, to God, but in between God and you, there was your father, there was your mother. Yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> there were your relatives, yeah. and so, or there were the town fathers, or w whatever, you know, and yeah. uh, we've lost uh, sight of that. So when I think about, you know, what... See, we'll, and, and actually there's a, there's a serious moral issue there. Yeah. yeah. Because you move from a sense of gratitude to a sense of entitlement. That's it. And that is, not, not only is it, is, is it just unpleasant, but it is absolutely devastating to character, to, to yeah. virtue, to right. integrity, to any of those kinds of things. Yeah, so it, so it harms the recipients as yeah. much as it harms the society. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it, 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 it definitely creates one of those, um, I think, spiritual, you know, I mean, it ties right into the, the spiritual dimension of the way in which, in, in which um, a certain um, plenitude of blessing creates conditions for ingratitude mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. when it starts to become internalized with people that this this is to be expected and therefore I deserve this and more. Mm -hmm. And there's yeah. a certain idolatry there, I'm sure, that, that goes into into this. And, and I'm sure the particular um, success-orientedness that has come, you know, long, especially in the U.S., with so much blessing and so much, I mean, through technology and, and the sciences and all those avenues in which life has become very um, secure for a lot of people. I'm not talking about those who have been hit at the bottom, but secure for a lot of people to where that security is taken for granted and it's almost assumed that it needs to be supplied by the government if a parent yeah. or this can't do it. Thank, Thank you. you. You're welcome. Right. Now, now this is the thing that uh, appalls me whenever I talk to people who are kind of the social justice types. Yeah. You know, the social justice types, they're all about making sure the machine works right. <laughs> it's, dis it's distributing benefits yeah. well and doing all this good. But, it, it, but the, the social justice types are actually undermining uh, character formation. Right. 
Now, I'd like, we're getting close to the time where we need to wrap up here on this podcast, but let me just end with a couple of, of thoughts, and maybe we can return to these thoughts at some point, and then I'll let you guys give your final thoughts. But um, related to this matter of human scale, I think whenever you're dealing with a human being, whenever you, you can see the face of, the, of your benefactor, you, you feel a need to make a return. Now, you might be the sort of person that would rather not make a return, but generally when, that, when that's the case, you just bolt, you just run. And no one thinks of you as a victim. Everyone thinks of you as a, as a scab at that point. <laughs> there's, none, no, there's no nonsense about victimhood uh, when a person has received help and failed to make some kind of response, an appropriate response. So what we have in, a, in, a, in, the, in the system that we've created is an, we've created an environment that undermines character because it's removed the personhood of the benefactors and consequently no one feels a need to make an appropriate response. Uh, so human scale, I think, is something that will have to be recovered in a post-welfare state society. We'll need to recover, and I think that means the household. And that brings me to the, my final point. The household is the great reconciler. Now, of course, Christ is the, is the reconciler when we think about our relationship to God. But when we think about our relationship to each other, the household provides the framework for reconciling the sexes, for giving them a common interest. Today, one of the big problems that we have is many women believe that their interests are best served through a, an understanding that keeps men at a distance. It actually can vilify men. And many men feel the same way. So that they're, they're, they think that well, the last thing I need is a wife because then she'll divorce me and then <laughs> take my money. You know, so a lot of guys actually think this way. They do, yeah. So, you know, we have a situation in which the sexes are put at odds by the machine of the welfare state. Now, the other thing, of course, that the, that the household reconciles is the generations. You know, the generations, you know, when we think about today, you know, everything in our society segments the generations. You go to school, you're in an age, you know, sort of cohort. Um, you know, it's almost like, and then we take old people and we put them in a nursing home. You know, you don't have ongoing daily you know, exposure to elderly people. Um, so consequently, we, we, the, way the way the modern world works is it, it's a, in the interest of efficiency, it collects people by need. And it sort of, it, it sort of accumulates them in, into bodies or, group, or groups. If, and sort of takes them out of the the the, uh, the household environment in which all of these things are sort of integrated. A marvelous movie that illustrates this in a very poignant way is Barry Levinson's uh, the, uh, movie uh, from the early 1990s called Avalon. And in that movie, and I'll just end with this, and then I'll let you guys uh, jump in. But in that movie, you've got some Jewish immigrants from Russia. Hmm. And uh, the first immigrant who comes over is a guy named Sam, and he arrives in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And it's on the 4th of July. This, of course, is the setup. <laughs> America, what a beautiful country. I came off the boat, and there are all these fireworks. It was marvelous. <laughs> Only in America. You know, he's excited to be here. So he becomes a paper hanger. In other words, a wallpaper installer. He works hard, saves his money, 
and saves enough to bring his brother over. Mm. So his, his brother comes over. Then they work together, and they save enough to bring the next brother. There are five brothers. Mm. So they work hard, bring the all, yeah, all the brothers come over. And then it's the wives yeah. and the children. So they work hard, save up enough money to bring the first wife over, the second wife over, the third <laughs> wife over. Next thing you know, they own a they own an entire block of brownstones in Baltimore. They own like a city block. <laughs> so all the cousins are growing up next to each other, all these little kids. Yes. Then the big day arrives. It's time to bring over the papa, the father of the brothers. And they're all excited. They go to the boat. And this is told from the perspective, it's actually Elijah Wood from like the Lord oh, of the Rings. Really? He's just a little kid in the film, you know? So he's, he's describing this as a, I thought he would be huge. I thought he'd be a giant because they always talked about the Papa. Yeah. The Papa. He was like four foot eight. <laughs> he comes down off. He comes down the, the you know the ramp from the boat. He's just this tiny little man, <laughs> and they're all excited and they yeah. bring him. And they bring him home. And so what he does for the rest of his life is he spends his time in each of the sons' houses. He just kind of goes down the block and spends time with each son. And then at the end of the day. Whenever the sons have finished their work, they come home and they give a portion of their profits to the papa. Mm. He's got a cup. He's sitting on the front porch. And they each put a portion of their profits into the father's cup. And then they say, as a sort of like, a, in, in a sort of a, as, 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 you know, they're proud. They said, and he never had to drink water. <laughs> 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 and that was that was something they were proud of. That he would do is he'd go out and get some vodka, and then he'd get drunk. <laughs> and basically, that was the thing. They were caring for the papa. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the film, the first the the the, the, the first son, the oldest son, who mm. came over and starts the film. His name is Sam. Where do you find him when he's old? Mm. In the nursing home. Hmm. Alone. All right, so we got some food here for Tom. You sure you Thank want you. a little snack, a little kettle? I'm good for chips? now. I'm good for now. Okay. <laughs> you take away the menu or I'll leave them? Yeah, why don't we leave it? I'll oh, get yeah, something yeah. in a few minutes. Sure, sure. So, anyway, so the, of course the tragedy is the juxtaposition. The change that, is that quick. Yep. Yeah, in two generations. So basically, yeah. you, got, you go from the situation where the elderly are on it. I got to throw this in. I remember one time I was in a hardware store in Cambridge, Central <laughs> Square, and I was in there and there's this Orthodox priest who comes in. Imagine this, I'm looking at bolts and nuts <laughs> in this aisle in the hardware store and there's this guy with the big long beard and the black you know, robe and he's coming down there. I was like, hey, you know, he was the Greek Orthodox priest who was just around the corner from the church I was serving. So we talk, you know, talk and shop. And he's talking about all these Greeks who are coming to the United States. And I said, oh, that must be a, 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 I say sort of naively, that must be a challenge. You know, homelessness with the Greeks. And he says, he looked at me. There's no such thing as a homeless Greek. It was a, it was a reprimand. But then he said, I'm afraid, though, that we may have that in the future. And then he talked about the diocese. They had just approved an old folks' home. He said this was something shameful, shameful, that we would have a Greek home for old Greeks. Wow. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> Welcome to America. Yeah. <laughs> so, Glenn, what do you have to say as we wrap up? 
Well, I think that where you started, that the, that the welfare state is going to collapse because nothing lasts forever in this world, I think that that is something that a lot of people don't really believe. Um, and you know the, the numbers that I gave about $20 trillion of debt now and then some, I don't think people actually understand the implications of that. Right. And it, it, it's going to cause problems, there's no question. The historical examples are legion of this sort of thing. And the thing that worries me, frankly, on a lot of levels is that we're not, not only are we ill-prepared to deal with what would happen if the welfare state collapses, but we aren't teaching people yes. the things that they need to know for when it happens. Right. Now, I'm not talking about about doomsday preppers here. Or anything, right, right. But just sort of basic skills, basic values, issues of virtue, all, all these kinds of things are not being communicated. Right, right. And, well, let alone what, what uh, uh, Confucius would call filial piety. Yes, exactly right. And you know that 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 bodes ill for the future. Yeah, we got a crisis looming. Yeah. Tom, anything you want to share? I mean, yeah, something related. Maybe we can even do another uh, podcast on. But I mean, I think one of the things that also complicates matters is this this over professionalization of every single thing. Yes. And the over management of everything, down to your plastic bags, to the toilet paper <laughs> you use. Because what ends up happening is you can't you can't be innovative and creative without penalty. Yes. And so right. you know, I I know you know. I mean, just I mean, my my. Finnish uh, family were immigrants here, and and they they did something very similar. I mean, they they worked together with families, brought the rest of the family over. They worked and they worked in mines. I mean, my grandfather died in a mining accident. I mean, it was very mm. dangerous, and and one of his sons. Yeah. And so my here is my great grandmother had to raise uh, eleven children, not speaking wow. any English, in a foreign country. Um, and, and, you know, you talk about, a, you know, a very strong woman and someone who had to deal with conditions that were not easy. But she didn't sit here and bank on, on the, the state to bail her out. Right. They were innovative. They learned how to grow in their garden and work in their house and, and sow with what they had. Yes. Well, now if you try to fix your car a certain way or you try to do this and it doesn't match a certain kind of standard for the state, you're penalized. Yes, you're that's almost, right. You're almost taxed or, you know, risk, risk more than that. Yes. So th th it is the conditions of survival and the conditions to actually pull yourself up and kind of carry your own weight with intergeneration, intergenerational dependence is, is ha faces more challenges than it would have in, a, in another right. time. So maybe we could visit that at some point. Oh, that'd be great to talk about. Yeah, I've got a lot of thoughts on that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, we've gone long, but uh, thank you for hanging out with us and staying with us uh, through this long podcast. And uh, we hope that you'll join us again next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.